questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Today, 60 years after the UFO abduction of Betty and Barney Hill, more and more people are convinced that UFOs are real and their existence is being covered up by the government. If you have doubts or questions about the Hill case or alien experiences in general, tonight we will discuss the book titled Captured. The 1961 abduction of the Hills stirred worldwide interest and enthralled the public and media for decades. The case is mentioned in almost all UFO abduction books. It also became a target for debunkers who still attack it today. But the complete story of what really happened that day, its effect on the participants and the findings of investigators has never been told until now. This is the true story of the world's first documented alien abduction, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Kathleen Marden is a leading ufologist who since 1990 has been researching the perplexing nature of UFOs and the non-human entities associated with highly advanced aerial vehicles. Not through the work of others, but via her own groundbreaking research, investigation, and experimentation. Her research has extended to archival collections and the U.S. government's involvement in the investigation of UFOs and its major studies. This has combined to give her a depth of knowledge that few possess. She earned a bachelor's degree in social work and was employed as an educator and education services coordinator while attending graduate school. She's a certified practitioner of regression hypnosis and the quantum healing hypnosis technique. Her interest in UFOs and contact began in 1961 when her aunt and uncle, Betty and Barney Hill, had a close encounter and subsequent abduction in New Hampshire's White Mountains. She spent 15 years in painstaking investigation of the Hill abduction case and continues to seek the scientific analysis of the compelling evidence. She has worked on three comprehensive studies on nearly 5,000 experiencers, two of which she initiated and sought to an end and has five professionally published books. Her bestseller with nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman is Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience, which will be the focus of tonight's interview. She and Stanton Friedman worked together for nearly 14 years and collaborated on two additional books, Science Was Wrong and Fact, Fiction and Flying Saucers, and she has written additional books. Most recently, her work has been featured on Ancient Aliens and several Travel Channel shows. Kathleen has lectured at conferences across the United States and in Canada, Mexico, Brazil, and the UK. She has given video lectures also in Denmark and China. Now we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. Her website is kathleen-martin.com. And directly from Central Florida, I would like to welcome, for the first time on Veritas, Kathleen Martin. Hello, Kathleen, and welcome. How are you? Hello, I'm doing well, thank you. It's nice to be with you this evening. My pleasure, and as I said before, I'm surprised you have never been with me here, even though I've met you several times. Like many people, I thought you were Stanton Friedman's wife at one point. <laughs> people made that mistake. I guess they saw me next to him and uh, thought that I was his wife helping him out, but no, I'm... Uh, a researcher and co-author of three books, as you said. 
I said to myself, with who's Stanton? that beautiful lady, smart lady, always with Stanton? But, you know, <laughs> you and Stanton wrote this book, but I didn't know, and I, I have to apologize right from the beginning. I didn't know until recently that you were Betty Hill's niece. Oh, yes, yes. I have been all of my life. I was 13 years old when she and my uncle had their experience. And she phoned my mother when they arrived home. They had taken a nap. But she was uh, very concerned that the craft had come so close to her and to Barney when he was standing in the field uh, within 100 feet of him that she feared they had been exposed to radiation. And we had a neighbor who was a physicist. So she was on the phone with my mother, and I was uh, overhearing my mother's side of the conversation. Uh, as they discussed what to do, my mother called the physicist. And for some reason, he told my mother that if Betty had a compass, she should take it to the car to see how the needle reacted. Now, that's not going to measure radiation. That is going to uh, detect a magnetic field. So apparently, he knew something about this that we didn't know at the time. And you were 13 at the time, am I right? Yeah, that's correct. I was 13. So I want to really, this is the 60th anniversary coming September 19th of this year, will be 60 years after this event, in the 1960s. All we heard when it comes to abductions was really the George Adamski stories. But it wasn't until the testimony of, of Betty and Barney that things really changed. It was a paradigm shift. Why is this abduction case so important? And then we'll dive into it. Well, it certainly was a paradigm shift because with George Adamski, you were dealing with benevolent space brothers who were here to help Earthlings. In Betty and Barney's story, they were kind of stalked by a UFO as they drove down Route 3 in upstate New Hampshire while they were returning from a vacation. And this craft followed them swooped down, hovered over them. They heard a series of uh, code-like buzzing sounds that caused their car to vibrate and for a tingling sensation to pass through their bodies. The next thing they knew, they were 35 miles down the highway with very little recall of what had happened in the interim. They remembered encountering a roadblock they remembered a fiery orb that appeared to be sitting on the ground. They heard a second series of these buzzing sounds and were brought back to full consciousness. Uh, they looked for the craft this time. They didn't see it. And Barney said to Betty, uh, I can prove to you that I can make that sound with this car. So he stopped the car on the highway and drove from one side to the other, attempting to create that sound, but he could not do it. And so Betty said to him, uh, Barney, do you believe in flying saucers now? And he said, mm, don't be ridiculous, Betty. There's no such thing as flying saucers. He liked to kid her. He knew there were. He had been standing in a field with binoculars to his eyes, looking up at non-humans who were looking back at him. They were hovering only 100 feet overhead. He could see the lighted row of windows, all but one suddenly made a turn toward what appeared to be some kind of panel on the back of that hallway. Their arms went up. He could see from the tops of their heads down to their knees. And when that happened, little red lights started to slide out from the sides of this silent oval-shaped craft that he said reminded him of a giant pancake. And something started to drop down out of the underside of the craft. Barney immediately thought that he was 
going to be captured like a bug in a net, he said. And that is when he pulled the binoculars away from his eyes with so much force that he broke the leather strap and went screaming back to the car to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be abducted. And as he was entering the car, he saw that craft coming in his direction. Moments later, that's when they heard the buzzing sounds. And I want to discuss also, before we continue in chronological order, I want to discuss how among the many skeptics about Betty and Barney's claims, you were one of those skeptics, am I right? When did you jump into the quackmire of UFO abductions, and how did you go from skeptic to believer? Well, I indeed was a skeptic because I had been reading um, the articles and books written by skeptics, and I had also uh, watched skeptics on television who were discussing the case, and so I had a skeptical point of view, and I wanted to know for myself if my aunt and uncle actually had this experience or if it was just a mistake. Maybe dreams that Betty had that she was convinced were real. Maybe my uncle overheard those dreams and thought that uh, they had had the experience. It would have been unlikely for Betty and Barney to do that because they were really down-to-earth people, intelligent people. But uh, I wanted to do my own investigation. So I actually took training from the Mutual UFO Network and became a field investigator and began a very long process of investigation and research. I had all of Betty's files from all of the years dating back to 1961, all of the documented evidence, all the reports from UFO investigators and from the Air Force as well, I she gave me the hypnosis tapes, which I transcribed, about 10 hours of tapes uh, for comparative analysis. And I wasn't a very good typist at that point, but uh, I got that done. And I wanted to do that comparative analysis so that I could compare the statements that Betty wrote about a sequence of five dreams that she had uh, beginning 10 nights after uh, their encounter and lasting for five nights. She told me that she had dreamed for only five nights and that the beginning and the end of those dreams were things that they remembered, that she had conscious recall for. But sandwiched in between those was an abduction by entities that looked very human in Betty's dreams. So uh, I wanted to compare those statements to what Betty and Barney said under hypnosis with Dr. Benjamin Simon. And uh, it it was very interesting. I did uh, write about this at length in Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. But I can tell you that after I uh, did that comparative analysis, I was less convinced that uh, the skeptics were correct about the series of dreams that Betty had. She and Barney made statements under hypnosis that uh, were nearly identical but were different from the statements they made under hypnosis and some are uh, in Betty's dreams. And some of this information in Betty's dreams uh, contradicted the information that both Betty and Barney stated in hypnosis. But the, the most important thing about this is that Dr. Simon, who was a renowned neuropsychiatrist, interviewed them under hypnosis separately, and he reinstated amnesia at the end of each session. He did this for two reasons. One, because he didn't want one to contaminate the other one's statements. And two, because at times during the hypnosis sessions, Betty 
and Barney were so traumatized that he did not want them to remember that trauma immediately because it could cause them additional anxiety. And, you know, one of those uh, skeptics had written that Betty's uh, UFO abduction was like spending an afternoon in the grocery store. And uh, I learned that it certainly was not. There was one session where Dr. Simon had to end the session early uh, because Betty was sobbing. She was extraordinarily distressed. Very clever from the neuropsychiatrist to do that. You know, and I've, I've interviewed abductees or experiences as, experiences as some of them prefer to be referred to. Some have full recollection, Kathleen, and some had to be hypnotically regressed. How do you think the beings accomplish erasing or blocking, rather, some memories and not others? You know, I have been researching that for years, and uh, I think that it is electromagnetic. I, I know that they have a pointer that they can point at a person. They made the decision that Betty was not going to remember what had occurred and that Barney wasn't. Betty was the one who said, if it's the last thing I do, I will remember this. Uh, and so she remembered more than Barney. But uh, also, there are people who do have a full memory of what has occurred, which is pretty amazing. Um, but uh, I do believe that it has something to do with a, an electromagnetic field. And in the years, past 30 years, that I have worked with experiencers, uh, I have discovered that uh, the non-human entities on the craft uh, show them the same scenes, uh, either through holographic images or on screens, over and over again. They're given warnings about the dangers of nuclear weapons. They're giving warnings about environmental collapse. Uh, they have been indoctrinated for since 1954, that's as far back as I've been able to trace it. And they have been asking these uh, human experiencers to carry that message. So I am not certain that all of these uh, non-human entities on craft realize that humans uh, who are exposed to this powerful electromagnetic field are not going to remember uh, what they have been asked to do when they have been released and are back in their homes. It reminds me of my conversation with Jim Sparks. You probably know who Jim Sparks is. Yes, I do. In that story of where they, he's sat down and he has to watch these images or holograms of what the future might look like on planet Earth if we don't if we don't address these issues. But were Betty and Barney, were they chosen or were they just victims of being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Well, Betty and Barney believed that they were victims of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. They, the craft had come in fairly close. They stopped the car, got out with binoculars to, to look at this craft uh, three times uh, before it uh, hovered over their car and they heard those buzzing sounds that I spoke of. So, But I wonder... Because I have worked, as you said, on those three major research studies, and we have discovered that in about 60% of experiencers, uh, this is uh, carried through generations. So it's intergenerational. And Betty and Barney had what was a classic abduction experience. I wonder if Betty actually had been taken before, perhaps dating back to her childhood, we know that the vast majority of experiencers are taken for the first time before they're 20 years old. So I, I will never have the answer to that question, but that's what I wonder now. 
And also you had a genetic link to Betty, obviously. How close were you to her? And I bet you had intimate conversations that she didn't share with others. Am I right? Uh, Yes, that is correct. And um, my mother was Betty's younger sister. She was 10 years younger than Betty. And I think that Betty called my mother because uh, my mother had had a UFO sighting up fairly close in about 1958. And she had another sister with her in the car when they had this sighting of a huge mothership with smaller craft flying uh, into it. And so I just wonder if uh, they had an interest in my family. And that's why my mother and another aunt saw this craft. I didn't find out about this until September 20th, 1961, when Betty called my mother. It was the first time I had ever heard of what they called flying saucers in those days. So, uh, yes, and I was uh, 20 miles away from Betty. That's where my home was. I grew up across the street from my grandparents' farm, and they were Betty's parents. And so I saw Betty and Barney, oh, once or twice a week, I would say. Um, Then, as Betty grew older, I uh, had uh, taken care of her. She was kind enough to assist me in... uh, going through the University of New Hampshire, uh, assisted me financially. I lived with her for a while when I was a student at UNH. And so uh, I felt that I had a responsibility toward her and as she felt she had a responsibility toward me. But this gave me the opportunity to have many private conversations with Betty to Uh, travel up to the White Mountains time and time again with Betty as I played devil's advocate as we drove through that close encounter route and I attempted to uh, fracture her her story. And uh, in the end, I couldn't. She always had an answer for everything. But I was still skeptical and... uh, so I, I have to say that I know Betty better than probably anyone else in the world at this point uh, because we were so close. And in, when she was dying from cancer uh, back in 2003 and 2004, uh, her daughter, who lived in Arkansas at the time, and I took turns taking care of Betty. We would stay with her and uh, for uh, two to three weeks, and, and then the other one would, would stay for that length of time as well. So uh, we were with her to the end, to the last day of her life, as we t- did hospice care for her, and hospice came into her home. You can tell by reading the book and looking at all the photographs that you had a great kinship with her. And Barney, I believe, died, am I right, 1967? Uh, Barney died in 1969 from a massive cerebral hemorrhage. Right, right. Now, why would Betty, and I want to go into in chronological order in a a moment, but what would Betty and Barney had to gain by sharing this story to the public? A lot of people say... You know, they made that story up. I hear skeptics talk about that, and it makes no sense to me, at a time when they probably didn't want to call attention to themselves, let alone talk about an abduction by extraterrestrials. Well, Betty and Barney were an interracial couple in 1961. They had married in 1960. They were doing good things in the state of New Hampshire. Betty was a social worker. She worked in child welfare and adoption for the state of New Hampshire. Barney worked for the post office, but they were both actively involved in the civil rights movement. And in fact, Barney, in 1965, before the story broke, uh, as the 
result of a violation of confidentiality, Barney had been uh, appointed to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission as a representative from the state of New Hampshire. He had also received an award from Sergeant Shriver for uh, helping to set up the Rockingham County Community Action Program through the Office of Economic Opportunity. And he was the first chairman of the board of directors for the Rockingham County Community Action Program. They were working on voters' rights, on civil rights. Uh, they campaigned for Lyndon Johnson. Uh, they received invitations to the inauguration and took me with them. I received an invitation as well. So, uh, you know, they had a lot to lose. Their jobs, their reputation as credible individuals who were uh, doing wonderful things. Uh, and unfortunately, a friend of Betty's who knew about the story leaked that story to a newspaper reporter from the Boston Traveler. He called Betty and Barney and he wrote them a letter as well. I have the letter where he said uh, that she had been discussing them with him and that he wanted to uh, speak with them personally, and he said that he had no interest in publicizing this, and still Betty and Barney said, no, we are not going to speak with you. Uh, we do not want this to be made public, but he simply ignored him. He took the evidence from uh, Betty's friend, her testimony. He interviewed other uh UFO, people in the UFO field. He interviewed uh, officers from Pease Air Force Base. He even went to upstate New Hampshire and found at least a dozen people who had observed that craft that night that Betty and Barney uh, had their experience. So unfortunately for them, the story was released. And Barney's commission with the U.S. Civil Rights Commission was not renewed when it expired. Mm. And, you know, that was a big disappointment. Absolutely. And Project Blue Book, which investigated UFO reports between 1947 and 1969, did they get involved and did they investigate the story at all, Kathleen? I wish that Project Blue Book had investigated. They didn't do an investigation, but Betty... And Barney called them and made a report. Uh, that was because my father's best friend, Buzz Sawyer, was uh, the chief of police in Newton, New Hampshire, the neighboring town. He stopped by my childhood home for coffee every night on his way home from work. And he uh, told my parents to let Betty and Barney know that they needed to make a report, that Pease had notified police stations locally that if anyone had a UFO sighting, they wanted to hear about it. So Betty and Barney, being the good citizens that they were, made a report to Pease Air Force Base. The Pease wrote the report. Uh, they said by coincidence there was uh, a radar sighting at 2.14 a.m. Uh, that night, uh, by my calculations, that would have been about the time that the craft uh, had dropped Betty and Barney back to their vehicle uh, for their drive home. So, uh, or, um, you know, there, this is another confusing thing to me. Barney said under hypnosis, do they go underwater? And so I've always wondered what he meant by that. But I do know that uh, craft are seen entering and uh, the water and coming up from the water all large bodies of water. So I wonder if that craft actually flew Betty and Barney out to the Atlantic Ocean, went uh, down, and then uh, came up at 2.14 and dropped them off back uh, in uh, upstate New Hampshire. Well, you know how they say that Hollywood sometimes tells us the truth, this guy's science fiction. And I grew up in the island of Puerto Rico, it's one of the deeper 
portions of the Atlant of the world that they are north of the Atlantic Ocean, and many many fishermen for decades have been reporting they see these lights that go up and down the water. There's no splash whatsoever, and even the movie. Uh, the Abyss by James Cameron depicted these beings that go up and down the ocean. I mean, think about it. Seventy percent of our of our planet is all ocean. You would think that if there's a intelligent living being everywhere, everywhere else on on the universe, that they would choose perhaps to be hidden under the water. Yes, I mean that would be a very good plan. They could have a base under the water, and in fact. Uh, in 1952, after the UFOs were seen over Washington, D.C., and it caused such a stir yeah. around our nation and the world, uh, Major General John A. Samford held the largest press conference at the Pentagon since the end of World War II. And the beginning of his statement was that these things have been around for centuries. They date back to biblical times, and every century there have been reports of these things. So I decided that I would uh, look back into the mid-19th uh, century, and there was a report of a family that was out fishing on their boat, and they had a craft that rose up out of the water and was hovering above their boat and uh, just frightened them half to death. And uh, they made a quick retreat back to shore. This is also interesting. Yes. I'm, I'm glad we're taking these parentheses because you have studied more than the story of your aunt and uncle. But the 1952 flyover Washington, D.C., the, the UFO flyover, this is something that has fascinated me for decades because it's almost, and you might not agree with me, but it's almost as if they're saying we can fly above the, the strongest military power in the world and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, maybe that's what they were saying, or maybe they were saying it's about time that you acknowledge our True. presence. Uh, you know, so many people had reported uh, UFO sightings all across the United States, dating back to 1947, after Kenneth Arnold had his sighting of, of nine uh, daylight disks uh, over the Cascade Mountains in Washington. And... Uh, that news traveled across our nation, and just five days later, uh, the Army Air Force, uh, it was officially under the Army at that point, uh, Rod General Roger Ramey uh, met with the press, and he gave a statement that uh, there was no worry that they had identified uh, what Kenneth Arnold saw as meteorological phenomena. There were no UFOs. And uh, the reason he did that is because there was some public hysteria. So I think that the government, I know that the government, I should say, I've studied uh, the original documents, uh, I know that the government is very concerned about public hysteria. If there is public hysteria, as they move forward with a little bit of disclosure, then they will retract what they had released and uh, do a cover-up on that story. But uh, hopefully today, uh, people are better able to accept the alien presence here on Earth. Interesting you're saying this because next week I'm having... Steve Bassett on to discuss exactly what you just said. I've had him on for years, but I'm always, I have to say, I'm a, a bit skeptical all the time that we're going to get a world leader announcing disclosure. But as you said, domestic tranquility, that is the the biggest priority for any any leader. They want yes. their population to, to not be disturbed, to cause an economic or religious or societal collapse. I understand that. But what do you make of the most recent announcements coming out of the Navy and even former, uh, what is it, the Secretary of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, who's making these comments saying, we don't know what their maneuvers are. We just need to. And now Senator, uh, uh, not Ted Cruz, uh, uh, what's the name, the, the Senator from Florida? The senator from Florida, Marco Marco Rubio, Marco was saying that we need to identify them. So they're making these pronouncements that before 
Any politician would say that, and it would be the kiss of death. And now I'm, I'm no longer embarrassed to discuss the. I've never been embarrassed to discuss these topics, but now people are really taking us seriously. What's your take on all these? You know, talk about UFOs being chased by the Navy and the military and so on. Well, I say it's about time that uh, the government did something honest regarding that. And uh, in in January, Congress passed a bill. Uh, it was in Trump's last bill. And in that was uh, that UFO disclosure would be uh, the documents that are not uh, classified Uh, would be released in June. So I hope that they declassify some of the documents. I know they have to keep the uh, above top secret documents uh, under wraps. But, uh, you know, what the Navy has, has seen during maneuvers, both off the West Coast and off the East Coast, uh, are remarkable. You can, you see the infrared uh video of these craft you can see the uh, that they are on radar uh, very high tech radar uh, the uh, officers who were flying these planes uh, were highly experienced uh, they were seen uh, hovering at 80,000 feet for hours on end in 20 in a second, they could drop to 20,000 feet. In another second, they can drop to 50 feet above the churn of the ocean, making it appear that the ocean is is boiling. And then the uh, Navy could see another craft underneath this one that they called the Tic Tac that was just bouncing back and forth like a ping pong ball. The, uh, the scientists... Uh, who are part of the To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science, uh, have examined this and have made the statement that this is beyond our second generation technology, that it defies our current physical laws, that if humans were inside those craft, we would be killed. And uh, obviously, they have technology that we don't understand. And well, I think we want to get our hands on it. We, Of course. I, the military, that's, that would be the biggest. Uh, <laughs> you would think that, that this would be the number one priority. And if some people say Roswell didn't happen, some say that it did happen, but at least you would think that we wanted to fool the Russians at least to say we got this technology because they will be thinking, oh, they have all this advanced technology. But I know someone, a high-ranking member of a major airline, and he just told me, well, years ago, he told me that there are two, a few things that you cannot discuss as a pilot. The number one thing you do not open your mouth is that you saw a UFO because immediately you would be placed... Uh, under medical or psychological evaluation, rather, and you don't want to lose your job. But it's happening with more frequency lately, to the point that in the past few weeks, you probably saw it in the media, uh, this airline said that at 38,000 feet from the ground, one it looked like a human being, or like a person with a jetpack, going at 700 miles per hour, the jetpack just flew by, much faster, right next, almost like waving at the pilot, number one. Number two, another pilot of the same airline said that a cylindrical object approached it, was in front of it, and it was almost on top of it for a while. They thought it was a, a an emergency. This was discussed within the board of directors of this airline with the CEO present discussing it. This is the first time I've ever heard these kinds of talks taking place. Well, you know, the, uh, the Navy was, uh, the pilots from the Navy were distressed because the Navy was not acknowledging uh, that they were having these sightings. They weren't allowing them to report these. Now, you're talking about commercial airline pilots, but uh, 
too. But I think that if the the Navy has finally permitted its pilots to make reports about the sightings that they have, and so I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if uh, the airways have been opened for uh, commercial pilots as well. But I can see how a commercial pilot would pronounce and, and, and explain what they have seen as opposed to the military, because if the military is saying, we have seen them, we try to chase them, but they outrun us, they have maneuvers that we cannot even come close, that is almost admitting defeat militarily. And you don't want to say that, don't do you? You don't want to say that, but... Uh You know, our military has been studying this all the way back to 1946. Uh, In fact, in 1955, uh, Project Blue Book Special Report number 14, the largest study ever done on UFOs, 3,201 cases, uh, was done at the Battelle Memorial Institute. And they classified this uh, these sighting data into several different categories, uh, common categories such as balloons, birds, uh, meteorological phenomena, psychological hoax, and so on and so forth. In the end, 21.5% of their cases, way back in 1955, were true unknowns. They could not identify them as anything coming from this planet. So this has been going on a long time. And uh, the television uh, has been preparing us for the past, oh, probably close to 10 years now, because very few shows uh, way back were uh, hauling out their disinformants. And uh, now I, I haven't seen any disinformants on uh, television uh, lying about what really happened. And there were plenty of them. I remember them. But yes. uh, the night 1947, we've all heard that audio from the U.S. Army, the U.S. Army Air Force has has in possession of a flying saucer. But it didn't become mainstream until, correct me if I'm wrong, 1978, when our mm-hmm. mutual friend Stanton Friedman released this to the he investigated this and released it to the media. Why did it take so long before that case became more popular? Well, our government is capable of covering things up. Uh, they, uh, the day after the announcement was made on the front page of the, the Roswell Daily Record, and that story went out uh, on the airwaves and uh, was carried in other newspapers around the country uh, before the lid clamped shut, uh, you know, it, there was, they said, a flying disc that had landed uh, on a ranch near Roswell. And we we have evidence. We know that uh, Major Jesse Marcel uh, had gone out there and had collected some of that evidence. And we know that Matt Bra- Mac Brazel uh, was taken into Roswell and interrogated and kept for four days. And when he uh, was released, he was walked to the radio station and the newspaper to change his story. So that was part of the cover-up. And then he was driving a brand new pickup truck. Uh, They must have paid him well. And uh, Jesse Marcel flew that debris uh, to to Fort Worth, Texas, uh, to the base there, laid it out for Roger Ramey on the table, and then Jesse Marcel was taken down the hallway uh, to the map room where he was to identify the precise location where that debris was found. And then when he arrived back uh, where he had laid this debris, it was gone. It had been replaced by a downed weather balloon. And, you know, you can't convince anyone who knows the real story that the 509th uh, Army Air Force that had dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and dropped another one on Nagasaki uh, couldn't identify an air uh, a, a weather balloon that was they these were falling 
to the ground all over the place in that area. In fact, if you uh, could pick one up uh, with the radar target on it, you could uh, claim a reward by turning it in. So, uh, You mean the, the weather balloons or the UFOs? The weather balloons. Mm. The weather balloon targets themselves. They still do that. Uh, if you can pick up a weather balloon, you can turn it in for oh, a small amount of money. And obviously, also, the, the story kept changing. You know, the weather balloon, and then it was the crash test dummies, which hadn't been not invented, but they were not available until years after, correct? That's, that is correct. And, and not only that, uh, these entities that were found at the Roswell site were very small and light. And uh, the crash test dummies were the size and weight of a human uh, man who would be uh, parachuting down to the earth. So uh, they they needed something that was similar to the human body. So uh, crash test dummies was really not a good explanation for what occurred. You know, they had to be time traveling crash crash test dummies <laughs> going back to 1947 from I think it was 1953. <laughs> I've heard so many stories, different stories. Like some researchers say that it was. Children with progeria, what was found there, and it was the Russians, and you know, stories that morphed through the years. They did, and then you know, they said that it was a secret uh, balloon uh, project as well, and and that they, you know, this was mistaken. Well, Stanton told me that he, when he looked into that, he discovered that the uh, balloon. Array was just like any other weather balloon array. They were neoprene balloons. Uh, there was nothing special about them. It was the mission that was highly classified, not the balloons and their structure. <laughs> so uh, all of the arguments that have been raised so far have been refuted. Well, let's go back to the matter at hand, the Betty and Barney Hill story. I want to do it in chronological order. If there's someone alive that can relate that story better than nobody else, you would be the one. Tell us, and I know there's a funny story, I believe that Barney was in the army and yes. he had a grenade accident. He lost his teeth, so he had dentures. He didn't want people to know that, but that's a funny story for later, right? Yes. Tell us from the beginning how they were driving that night, and what happened next. Well, they had spent the day uh, in Montreal, had a wonderful time, and had intended to spend the night there, but they heard that there was a hurricane whirling up the coast, and so they decided that they would drive uh, into New Hampshire and uh, arrive home at about maybe two o'clock in the morning uh, so that they would be at home uh, to put away yard furniture, that sort of thing, uh, before the hurricane arrived. So they were driving through upstate New Hampshire when uh, Betty saw a new light in the sky. And what attracted her attention to it is that uh, instead of moving like a shooting star, it moved upward into the sky. And so she continued to watch that, trying to identify what it was. It was a bright light night. The moon was about three quarters full and it started to come in closer and closer. And so she finally asked Barney to stop the car uh, at the Mount Cleveland picnic area. They stopped, they got out, they looked at the craft and got back into the car and headed south into Franconia Notch, uh, they, as they were entering Franconia Notch, they saw the craft up above Cannon Mountain. And there was a building on Cannon Mountain that had lights on, and the lights turned off as the craft passed over the top. Well, uh, that could be a sign of a powerful magnetic field that uh, interfered with the electricity. And then uh, they stopped again 
at the old man of the mountain, which uh, is no longer sitting on the mountain. It, it fell off in 2003 uh, into the lake below. But uh, you can go there if you're a tourist today and uh, visit that area anyway. The state has put up uh, a display of what it was. And um, they stopped there briefly. Uh, they could see the craft. Now it uh, was about one and a half times the length of the old man's profile. The old man's profile was 48 feet from chin uh, to uh, the top of its head. So this craft was at least uh, 70 feet in diameter. They, they found out actually that it was larger than that eventually. Uh, so they got back into the car. They noticed it, uh, that the craft was uh, moving erratically, not like a conventional aircraft, that it appeared to be lighted on only one side. And as they exited Franconia Notch into the area of Indian Head, which is in North Lincoln, um, they entered the area where there are uh, tourist accommodations and uh, activities for tourists to take part in. And they were no longer in that desolate area. And so uh, Betty said to Barney, it's coming in closer. It's coming in closer. Stop. Uh, pull over. Find a place to pull over. So Barney was looking for a place when this craft uh, surged ahead and stopped above the highway, no more than 200 feet above their vehicle. And Barney, in order not to drive directly under it, uh, had to move his car to these, so he was straddling the center line of the of the road. And so he took his binoculars and he stepped out of the car uh, and looked up at this craft. And there it was, hovering silently above him. He stepped back for a better look. And when he did this, the craft shifted to an adjacent field. He followed it into the field, leaving Betty in the car, leaving the motor running and the door open. So uh, he's in the field, and this is what I already described to you about uh, the craft being 100 feet above him, where he saw these non-humans who were dressed in black, shiny uniforms uh, and became very frightened because he thought he was going to be captured when something started to drop down out of the bottom of the craft. Today, we know that that is a carrier beam of sorts. These entities ride down on these beams and they take the humans up on them. So uh, I even have photographs of that today from a very important case I investigated where they had left a video camera running. It's amazing. And so anyway, getting You back have video to, footage of somebody being abducted or the beam of light coming out of a craft? The beam of light coming out of the craft, a non-human entity dropping off the beam, huh. uh, other non-human entities, and then there was missing time. We didn't capture the actual abduction, but we did. they did capture uh, the other very interesting material. Uh, it's a fascinating story, highly credible individuals uh, with a lot of evidence. So <laughs> much better than, uh, well, good evidence, not as good as Betty's and Barney's, I guess, unless you want to count those photographs as better. But anyway, uh, so they're speeding down the highway. Uh, they hear the second series of buzzing sounds that I already told you about. The they see the fire. They remember seeing the fiery orb. They remember being on a dirt road with tall trees all around. They remember encountering a roadblock, but they didn't remember precisely where that location was. They went back that fall over and over again looking for that spot. Uh, it wasn't until 1965 when they finally found it. But, you know, after they heard that second series of buzzing sounds, they, they drove home. And when they arrived home, uh, 
things were different than they anticipated. Uh, they they felt contaminated. They felt very dirty. Clammy, uh, clammy as a clammy. They Barney said, says. "Yes, that's a good New England term." <laughs> they felt clammy as uh, as they were dirtier than uh, they would be if they had just taken that trip. They took long showers, and that's the reason that Betty called my mother is because they feared they had been contaminated. And uh, Barney took off his best dress shoes, and the tops were so deeply scraped that he had to buy new shoes. Now, under hypnosis, he found out how that occurred. Uh, he said that he felt like he was floating, and only the toes of his shoes were bumping along the rocks as he was being uh, taken into this craft. Um, Betty uh, was surprised because her best dress that she had been wearing was in fine condition when she put it on that morning. But when she took it off the following morning, uh, it was torn. It was torn from waist to hemline. The hem was torn down on one side. Uh, the zipper that ran up her back had uh, a tear that was two inches long in the thick zipper fabric. Because they didn't uh, know how to open a zipper. They did not know how to open a zipper. By the time they got to Barney, they'd figured it out. But <laughs> but with Betty, they, they ruined her zipper. Were they, so, was uh, there missing time from the moment they realized this happening till the moment they were returning home? Did they notice? Wait a second. It was too many hours. They uh, didn't look at their watches until they arrived home. You know, because they're driving in, in the dark. They arrive home. At 5.15 in the morning, that's what her watch says. And I know that it wasn't running, so she set it for the correct time, and it never ran again, nor did Barney's. So the watches were broken. Betty's dress was torn. Barney's shoes were scraped. The binocular strap was broken, and there were shiny spots of, on the trunk of the car that hadn't been there the day before that uh, caused a compass needle to spin, indicating a strong magnetic field. What about which this? Is, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to say, which is uh, common. It's happened before in abduction cases. What about this pinkish powder or dust? Well, that... Uh, pink powder deposited on Betty's dress. She had uh, put it into her closet knowing it had to be repaired. The next time she took it out, it was covered with this uh, pink powdery substance. Um, she uh, put it on her clothesline and much of the powder blew away. The dress was discolored. Oh. Uh, she thought about throwing it away but decided not to because maybe it held a clue to what happened right. that night. And so this dress has undergone uh, analysis, oh, I guess it must be eight or nine times now, including DNA analysis. There is uh, subst a substance on that dress that is anomalous. The scientists cannot explain it except for that perhaps uh, when Betty was taken to the craft, her clothing was sterilized and there was yeast or fungus on the hands of these extraterrestrials and on the floor of the craft. The dress was saturated with that pink substance in the areas where they had placed their hands and also at the hemline where the dress dropped to the floor when they removed it from her. And... Uh, that is an indication that something happened and that she had the memory uh, of what happened that caused this and what caused the tears as well. And uh, since I wrote Captured and wrote the initial reports, science reports in Captured, in this update, it is an update on all of the scientific evidence that we've accumulated since 2007. When the book was published the first time, I've updated it with all of that very, very interesting uh, scientific evidence. So you think this powder shows us, if that's the case, that they didn't want the humans or the 
I don't want to call them victims or abductees, but they didn't want them to get contaminated, and they used this powder as a way to sanitize the the dress. No, no, they the scientists believe that uh, they sanitized the dress, but their hands were carrying the ET's hands were carrying this either yeast or fungus, and that it was the hands that caused the the pink to saturate so deeply around. For example, the sleeves of her dress, where she stated they held her uh, as they were escorting her. And on the hem of the dress, where it dropped to the floor, there must have been some yeast or fungus there. So uh, the scientists believe that that was deposited on Betty's dress in the craft and by these non-humans. Talking about what these hands of these extraterrestrials may have had if they come from somewhere else we obviously have no immunity towards to protect ourselves from that what about the warts that were found on barney's groin is that because of the same situation uh there's no conclusive evidence. They definitely were not uh, venereal warts. That was ruled out. Right. Uh, but there were uh, wart-like growths in a perfect circle on his body. And uh, it, it occurred when they were taking a sperm sample from Barney. Uh, it, it, it's possible, I suppose, that uh, it could have been deposited on his groin. Uh, by the instrument that was used. But that uh, procedure has been carried out time and time again over the years on male uh, experiencers. And I'm not aware of any other one that uh, had developed these type of wart-like growths. It could have been psychosomatic for Barney. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was so deeply affected by this. Uh, I think because he was the one who was standing in the field. He was the one with the conscious recall of observing these non-human entities looking back at him. He uh, is the one who felt uh, threatened, who felt that he was going to be captured. Betty was sitting in the car. She didn't see any of that. And so I think that uh, perhaps this was just another psychogenically induced uh, phenomena on, in, on Barney's body. Uh, he also developed uh, what they called conversion hysteria in that time frame where he uh, developed uh, bleeding ulcers, high blood pressure. He had uh, a lot of physiological symptoms. In fact, he ended up in the hospital. He had to uh, take a leave of absence from his job uh, because of the health problems that he suffered after this event occurred. Well, imagine if, if all of this is in your subconscious mind, uh, because a lot of it was repressed for a reason. And even the the uh, neuropsychiatrist did that on purpose to keep them in operational uh, human beings, if you want to call it that way. But during in part two, I want to continue in chronological order because there's so much detail in the book and you have added updates. I want you to describe the craft, the beings, the interviews, the quote-unquote talks that happen between them. And correct me again, I keep saying correct me if I'm wrong, but Barney and Betty, were they more like uh, a, if you remember the X-Files, a Fox Mulder and a Scully, where Fox was uh, Betty and the Scully was Barney? He was more the conservative, you know, let's uh, there's, there's a logical explanation for everything, and she was more the inquisitive mind, am I right? Uh, you could say that. She's the one who went to the library and took the first book she had ever read about <laughs> right? UFOs out of the library. and uh, but, but Barney did uh, speak with officers at Pease Air Force Base and said that it, it did happen and therefore this is why he was making the report. So uh, during the event, he was attempting to deny it, but he realized that uh, indeed this did occur. 
Did anyone ever say, because I believe Barney joined the army, uh, was it 1941? During, uh, 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 am I right, 1941? And he spent three years in the army, am I right? Yes, he joined just before the outbreak of World War II. Right, during and, a peace, yes. a piece, uh, what is it, uh, when, when they actually uh, pull you into the military, what's the, a draft, peace draft, right? Um, he joined, he was not drafted. Okay, okay. But some people, did he see action at all? Um, you know, he. I have a letter from the veterans of foreign wars, but according to his military record, it said that he uh, had not gone overseas. So I can't answer that. I've watched shows about black soldiers during World War II, and I know that sometimes they were not given what uh, they were supposed to be given. They were not um, given the credit that they deserved, yes. Yes, yes. So, um, you know, all I know is that he was wounded. Uh, there was an explosion. He lost his teeth. He had scars on his chest. And he was uh, recovering when he was released uh, at from uh, the Newport News uh, military base in, in fair condition. When we come back, I want to really discuss all of this the regression hypnotherapy because that's how it would be safe to say that this is probably one of the first times when hypnotherapy was used to extract information about a alleged extraterrestrial abduction experience it was the first time as far as i know and but i want to say that uh, dr simon had been a colonel in the army who set up the psychiatric unit at the Mason General Hospital on Long Island. He had a great deal of success in treating veterans who were returning from the war front. In fact, there was a movie made about his work. And so he was perfect for this. He too uh, did not believe that uh, UFOs were real, but he had a patient that he was treating because that patient uh, had a psychogenically induced physiological condition. The book is titled Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, the true story of the world's first documented alien abduction. Obviously, this show is about them, but I want to dedicate it to Stanton Friedman, who spent, spent decades not only investigating this case, but many other cases. How can people buy the book and all your other books, Kathleen? Well, you can purchase an autographed copy from me if you live in the United States by going to my website, Kathleen with a K dash Marden, M A R D E N dot com. Uh, it's also available in many formats, all of the formats possible at uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and at uh, various bookstores, online bookstores, and probably physical bookstores as well. Well, literally, we'll be getting inside the craft. I want a full description of those beings and what happened inside the craft. My special guest today is Kathleen Martin. Captured is the name of the book. This is Mel Hasselrick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. <laughs>